Welcome to the Consumer Rundown Podcast, your destination for the people, companies, and trends transforming today's consumer markets. We are your hosts. I'm Penny. And I'm Dimitri. On today's episode, we are joined by Luke Johnson, the co-founder of Rose Street Capital. We'll learn about the key moments and the lessons that shaped Luke's journey from an angel investor to starting his own fund. We'll also explore his investment approach and his views on the current investing landscape. Luke, thank you so much for joining us today. Today's episode, we're hoping will help early stage startup founders learn about some of the common pitfalls that you've seen in this industry and potentially use some additional signals that you may be using that they may be not to uh, evaluate success to see if they're on the right path. Uh, so can you please start by introducing yourself and Rose Street? First and foremost, thank you so much for having me today and, and for your time. I really appreciate it. I'm Luke Johnson, and I'm a co-founder and, and general partner here at Rose Street Capital, where we invest in consumer internet and software companies at the earliest stages. How did you become a venture capitalist, and what led you to start Rose Street? I think going back to my years in college, I was always fascinated by the internet and technology, really dived into it after reading Zero to One by Peter Thiel. From that experience, it became really clear that technology was kind of our generation's catalyst for change. And I really wanted to involve myself in that space and, and work in it. In school, I actually built a, a peer-to-peer marketplace where students on our campus could buy and sell products and goods from each other. And that was kind of nice. my foray into technology and software and advertising and and all of those things. That company ultimately ended up not working out, but my interest in the space working with technology continued to grow after that. What happened after you graduated from college? How did you continue that journey? After school, I jumped right into working in SaaS and software, primarily ad tech and, and martech. And that's kind of the beginning of the journey. And Along the way, a few of those companies that I was fortunate to work at were acquired. So I got experience going from an early stage seed company all the way through acquisition. But I was always fascinated on the, by the other side of the coin from our investors and venture capital in particular. There were a lot of funds at the time that were new and really making a name for themselves. And I followed them from their early, early beginnings and just knew that I really always wanted to work in venture and surround yeah. myself with people that were that I felt were really pursuing their dreams and things that they were really passionate about. I guess a long story short is that I didn't have a traditional path into venture. If there really is one, I'm not sure that there is, but it didn't come from the banking or finance side by any means, more of the technology and software side. I started angel investing in the SaaS technology where we serve as consumer brands. And those angel investments ended up being really interesting and, and kind of catalyze us turning turning the page and, and starting a full-end fund on which became Grocery Capital. Can you tell us more about how you first started doing angel investing? You know, I was fortunate to work with companies like Warby Parker, Harry's, but I didn't even know that you could write a small check and do a company like that until yeah. I just really just asked and they said yes. And that kind of, for better or worse, started a journey of angel investing for me. How long were you an angel investor before you started Rose Street Capital? For about two years. I was investing personally alongside my now business partner and our other general partner, Vincent Choi. Our investments were largely in consumer brands and then also the technology that they leveraged to drive revenue. 
either online or in traditional retail environments. That's very interesting. Could you talk more about your investment thesis and approach? What stage are you investing into and what's your average check size? It varies a little bit from the consumer brand side and then the technology side, I would say. On the consumer brand side, companies that we've invested in to date typically have around a million in revenue when we start speaking with them. And our entry investment is typically in their seed round. And then on the technology side, I would say that we invest earlier. Companies have a little bit less revenue than the consumer brands. I would say our entry point historically has been primarily seed. Could you share with us the metrics that you're using when you're looking at seed investments? That's a great question. When you're talking a million or sub one million in revenue, you're typically looking at your one or your two of a business. Because of that, there's not a lot of financial data or metrics to really look at or gleam a lot of insights off of. And also the company or the product that you're investing in at that point in time will be much different six months from that point or yeah. a year from then. And so a lot of what we do is actually speaking with founders and, and focusing on the founders and the team itself. Mm -hmm. And we do that in an attempt to understand their intentions, what they're really pursuing, and ultimately why, and whether we believe that they're genuinely the right person to build the company that they want to build and execute on that vision. I think it's really difficult to build a business, even though there's a lot of capital out there. There's a lot of ups and downs. And I would say that unless you're really pursuing something that you're really genuine about, it's just too easy and there's too many opportunities to quit along the way. And so part of our job is to really find people that are, are building or executing or pursuing what we, what we call kind of their life's work. At the earliest stages of investing, a lot of our time is spent talking with founders to try and understand if they're the right person for that or not. Can you walk us through an example in your portfolio of the process that you took? How did you approach them? Did they come to you? What was that process like? What kind of questions did you ask them or what was really important for you to find out? In terms of sourcing potential investments, we do it in a variety of different ways. But one thing that we do that might be different from other funds is that because we do invest in the technology side and then also yeah. the consumer brand side, something that is interesting is that when a new consumer brand approaches us, they might be a existing customer of one of our technology investments. And so aside from just looking at a pitch deck and other things and speaking with the founders, we actually utilize our technology investments as a way to gather raw data and insights about a potential consumer investment that we might be looking at. And so it's mm -hmm. one way in which we do diligence a little bit differently, which I think lends itself to us taking a more data-driven approach aside from just speaking with the founders and understanding who they are. How do you think about market potential and product market fit when there's limited data points available? That's a great question. I think we're taught in school, at least schools that I went to, that a bigger TAM means bigger, better yeah. opportunity. I'm not certain that's necessarily true all the time. We found founders in our portfolio that are pursuing, I would say, niche, uh, niche segments of the consumer space that are growing at exponential rates compared to someone that's building a product that's kind of built for everyone or a larger market. I think in general, something that we really look at uh, is founders in terms of how much cash or capital they trade for revenue at the mm. early stages. It becomes pretty clear when we're looking at a few different companies or a few different brands and you look at how much revenue or how much cash that they've spent on the business and how much revenue they traded for it, which of those companies we believe will win in the long run. 
And so quick example of that would be one of the companies in our portfolio, consumer brand, traded 20K personal personal capital for a million dollars in in revenue in year one. Whereas we've seen on the flip side of that, companies that have raised millions of dollars, in particular one company that spent $3 million for 100K in revenue. When you look at it from that perspective, it becomes very clear in terms of who we think will win in the long run. That's incredible. What helped them do that? I always tell everyone the initial capital that they raise from friends and family will be the most important capital that they raise as a founder. I think at the end of the day, what we really look for in early stage founders is character or personality in which they're trying to leverage their network or their experiences as much as they can and be successful with the little amount of capital that they may have. There's different ways of doing that. This company in our portfolio in particular has done things a bit non-traditional in the sense of acquiring customers, a Facebook group, credit mm-hmm. communities, and things like that, which most people don't really think about. It's a bit different than typical customer acquisition by via advertising. Have you ever met founders who are tackling a problem, but may not be going about it in the right way? Do you coach them through that? At the end of the day, the founders in our portfolio, they understand the domain and industry that they're operating in much more, especially on a day-to-day basis than than we ever could. Typically, as a fund, we're a bit hands-off in the sense that uh, we're not there to try and control day-to-day decision-making by Mm -hmm. any means. Trying to find founders that are really passionate about the pursuit that they're in and letting them take the wheel and drive from there. Anytime that we're getting in the weeds on a day-to-day basis, it's typically not not a good thing. Right now is obviously a tough time in tech and retail. Has your investment approach changed over the last 12 months, given macroeconomic factors? The markets have, have changed quite dramatically since 2021. I think there's certain things that we can control and things that we can't control, and the markets are certainly one of those things. We try to spend our time and, and focus on the things that we do have control over. So in terms of our investment strategy or philosophy, not much has changed over the last 12 months. We've always looked at consumer brands and their return potential and their growth differently from technology companies. And so I would say what we've seen recently is valuations between consumer brands and technology companies, the valuations, the gap there widen a bit, but we've always held that philosophy that consumer brands and technology companies are fundamentally different from each other. What's the difference in how you look at the two types of companies? That's a great question. We look at consumer brands and their growth more on a logarithmic curve. We invest early around a million in revenue, and then they can grow pretty quickly um, to 10 million or in excess of that in year two or three. But as they continue to grow across that curve, it flattens out a bit. And it becomes more and more difficult for them to scale into 200 million and beyond. Then inversely to that, we do look at technology companies on a traditional exponential growth curve. So I think for technology companies, initially on, it's really difficult to understand who your core customer is, which vertical or industry they work in, where that person sits in the organizational chart and what you're selling into. Finding product market fit, I would say on the technology side takes a bit longer. But if you can find that inflection point 
in the curve, then yeah. there is re- real possibility there for a technology company to grow exponentially. Does your exit timeline vary depending on whether it's a technology investment or it's a consumer investment? Yeah, definitely. One thing that we we try to do differently is um, to look at liquidity in a little bit different. I think funds on average are 10 years. And I don't know about you, but if I was invested in a fund, I would rather get my money back in returns sooner than that. Part of our strategy is to invest early, but also to exit when it comes to the consumer side of things. If there's an opportunity, we might sell some of our position on a series B round or so. And then on the technology side of things, there is more time and there are typically more rounds. And so in terms of potential exits on the on the technology portfolio, we look, I would say, more, more along series C or series D. What advice would you give entrepreneurs who are trying to launch right now? That's a great question. I think right now is is a really interesting time to to launch a new brand. It's also probably one of the best times, in my opinion. There's a a swarm of great talent out there. I think right now, investors, what they're looking for is focus on revenue and profitability or a path that gets you there sooner rather than later. And really looking at your product margin, your contribution margin, these are things that people obviously cared about before, but I think are now becoming even more so important. But let me ask you this. Is it reasonable to expect early stage founders to achieve both profitability and sustainable growth? I think it's it's not so much of an ask of not to spend money, but just to make sure that you're spending it in the right places, getting a substantial return out of that capital that you are spending. A few years ago, generating revenue was just placing ads on Facebook or Instagram, but that's become, I would say, table stakes and mm-hmm. become saturated. And as a result, we find ourselves in this period now where it is really difficult to stand out and, and differentiate yourselves on those on those platforms and channels. The winners that we are seeing today are the ones that are taking more of an experimental or novel approach in the sense that they're really putting time and effort into the content that they develop, putting together an influencer strategy that's different than the other brands that they compete with. So I think that there's a lot of experimenting going on. And we've we've even seen this in our own portfolio with one of our brands being a small, newer brand, actually advertising on billboards, which two or three years ago, we would have been really confused <laughs> why they were doing that. But it turns out, you know, these these billboards went viral and definitely played a role in, in terms of their, their success and, and revenue recently. And so just thinking outside of the box and trying to do things differently from everybody else, I think is is one way in which you can you can kind of compete especially, you know, very early on. When you're meeting with founders and you're talking to them, I imagine one of the things that you're trying to figure out whether this company is creating long-term value or is just following the trend. Can you talk more about that? That's an interesting question. I would say like trends and fads that, that we mm-hmm. see brands on the consumer side uh, kind of integrate into their their marketing, which I think makes sense. But I think at the same time, it's important not to grow almost too quickly, especially if you're a CPG brand, because at the end of the day, it can be nice to have your product stocked in every Whole Foods, every Target, every Costco, every Kroger, but at the the same time, you have to pay for that inventory. When we talk with CPG brands, we like for them to be really thoughtful about their national retail strategy and distribution, because having your product everywhere doesn't mean that everyone is buying it. 
And that's one where one place where we kind of go back to the drawing board in terms of looking at their customer data online and ask, how do we take that e-commerce data and weave that into your national retail strategy or distribution strategy? Are your customers really only living in New York and Los Angeles or do some of them exist in between? That's one place in which it helps brands to be very thoughtful about their national retail strategy and and where their customers actually are and, and which shelves they should actually be on. Right. And if they don't, customers don't buy it. And if you lose that relationship with that retailer, it could be really hard to get that back when you are ready to be to be there. Exactly. Having your products in all those stores is one thing, but you also need you also need shelf velocity to prove mm-hmm. that deserve to be there over the long term or that that retailer should should stock you in more of their stores. These are problems that companies in our portfolio face. And so we we actively seek out solutions for them. And we also invest in those solutions as well. A few of our technology or SaaS investments we've made, particularly with that thought in mind of how do we leverage technology to help them increase shelf velocity? There's a few companies in our portfolio that help do that. And a few of our consumer brands in our portfolio also work with them. Over the last 12 months, there's been a lot of talk about companies growing too fast. As a capital provider, do you consider it as part of your role to steer founders that you work with against the temptation of rapid growth and instead encourage them to prioritize smart growth? Looking through our own portfolio, there's companies that have grown in excess of 600% since we invested. It's tempting to put more fuel on that fire, but the real question that we're asking ourselves is, you know, is that growth sustainable over the long term? Is that growth, that year-over-year growth, going to be there next year? Likely not. And so it's not it's not something that we, I would say, take a whole lot of solace in exponential growth in, in the early years of a, of a company or of a brand, but really trying to understand what accounted for that growth and what can they repeat from last year or, or what right. can they take from from that growth story and really double down on next year or subsequent years following. What are the lessons learned, I would say, in a high growth year that, that they can use to, to grow sustainably over the long term? Coming back to the consumer tech piece a little bit, based on the trends that you're seeing both in the brand space and the tech space, what are some technologies key in empowering brands to succeed? In terms of traditional retail environments and technology, I think understanding and and owning first-party data in a retail environment is really important. Typically, most brands don't actually own that data. That that data is typically owned by the Mm -hmm. retailer itself. It's often the case that it's not really passed off to the brand itself. It becomes really difficult to remarket to customers that are are purchasing your products in-store. You need those in-store purchases to increase your shelf velocity and, and distribution long-term, but you also want to remarket to that customer to try and extend their LTV or play some sort of role in that. First-party data in a retail environment is, is something that I think is important today, but I think will, will become increasingly more important as D2C-first companies look more at their, their national distribution moving forward. If a founder wants to connect with you, what's the best way to do it? I'm always happy to talk to founders, whether they're raising or not. They can definitely reach out to me via email as luke at rosestreetcapital.com. That's the best way to get a hold of me. And if you reach out, I promise I'll get back to you. Luke, thank you again for joining us. We really enjoyed the conversation. 
thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. And I hope this is helpful for whoever's listening. And and again, if you want to reach out, please do so. And, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Thank you so much. This concludes our interview with Luke Johnson from Rose Street Capital. Thank you all for joining us. Please subscribe for more episodes of Consumer Rundown Podcast and visit us at consumerrundown.com. See you next time.